Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Path 11 podcast today. I am so excited for this show because it is a topic that I have known nothing about, really, maybe a little bit after I started reading. But this is a whole new topic that I am exploring, that I'm being exposed to. And I'm really curious to know if you've heard about spirit marriage before, because I have not. Now, the show today is a little bit about a love story, a love story between a human and an otherworldly being. My guest, Dr. Megan Rose, is married to a spirit. Yes, you definitely heard that right. And you might ask, how does one begin a romance with someone from the other side? That's exactly what I was thinking as soon as this book came across my desk. And what exactly is a spirit marriage? I had never heard of this before. So I said to my guests before we hit record, this is going to be, for me, spirit marriage 101, because this is all very new. And she said, that's okay. It usually is for everyone. So I'd like to um, show you the cover of her book for those of you who are watching on Path 11 TV. Again, the book is called Spirit Marriage, Intimate Relationships with Otherworldly Beings. And let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Megan Rose. She has a doctorate in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies and a master's degree in Religion and Society from the Graduate Theological Union. She is initiated ceremonial magician and a Shakta Tantric practitioner and a senior seer in the House of Bree Ferry Seership Institute. She serves as an ordained interfaith minister and psycho-spiritual counselor and is the executive director of the Entheosis Institute. So, Dr. Megan Rose, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, April. Yeah, you are just going to blow my world wide open. I know that for a fact. This book already has. And I feel like I've learned so much. There is such a very cool connection that we'll talk about a little bit later when I bring up a certain chapter in your book that, again, I love these synchronicities when they happen with Mike. That really helped me to put more of this in perspective, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But this is uh, this is a very new topic for me. I've never had anyone on the show talking about this. And when this invitation came across my desk and I read this, I was like, oh, my God, what is this? This sounds freaky. What? there's a woman married to somebody in the spirit world. What does this mean? I was so intrigued. And I love that it kind of pushes my my own boundaries and my own way of thinking to think about things from a much broader, I don't know, just view. And that's why I, you know, I have guests like you on our show to help me and help my listeners to really help us see the world very differently than just what appears to be this 3D reality. And that's all that we have. So welcome, and I'd love for you to just give my listeners a little bit of a background of um, how this all started for you. Yeah, well, you know, I like, it's it's sort of like the oldest new topic. <laughs> I like to say it's been hidden in plain sight throughout all of our history, folklore, origin myths. And most people can easily identify with spirit marriage when I use the example of the nuns in the Catholic Church. So nuns in the Catholic Church go through a ritual marriage to Jesus, to the Christ. They wear, some of them wear rings, take vows. And so it's not that out of the purview of, you know, most people's understanding of what it's like to live in a bonded relationship with a otherworldly being. It's just a little different when you're talking about it outside of the auspices of Christianity. I mean, Christianity is replete with these examples. We've got, you know, the nuns that married Jesus. We've got the Virgin Mary and the divine, you know, the immaculate conception by a uh, otherworldly being, whether it was a dove or the, the Holy Spirit or a, an angel or God the Father, you know, their theologians debate that all the time. So 
it's really not that that out of the realm of what we we hear about, right? We see it in folklore and we see it in in even in anthropological and historical accounts, you know, in the with the Greeks, right? The Greeks and the and the Greek tradition, humans were often mated to and sometimes married to divine beings and they had offspring by them. And so it's it's a story that is sort of followed us throughout our evolution as, as a human species. And I got interested in it because, you know, as a, a theologian and a scholar myself, I had sort of heard of these stories when I was in seminary. And then as I was practicing tantric practices and ceremonial magic practices, I began to have my own contact reach out to me. And at that time, I really didn't have any strong framework for that other than, you know, I knew that there was sort of this spirit lover tradition, but the spirit that was reaching out to me started asking to marry me. And I thought, well, this is odd. This is strange. I, you know, I'm um, pretty well versed in all this stuff. And this is kind of a new thing to me. This was 20 some odd years ago. And so I started researching it. You know, I put my scholar hat on and started looking for examples of spirit marriage because, you know, I remembered being in seminary, some discussion around this. Particularly, there's an account in Genesis in the Christian canon that talks about the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took unto them wives. And that's generally thought, you know, the angels, the watchers saw the human women and married them and had children by them and wackiness ensued, right? All sorts of different things transpired as a result of that. And so, I mean, I knew that there was sort of religious historical conversation. I just didn't know it was currently happening. So that's what I began to do as research. Why is this happening? Who's it happening to? What's the purpose of it? And why me? You know, why, why am I experiencing this? And, and that led me into the research that became my PhD dissertation and then became this book. And really was all with this desire to answer questions for myself that I could, didn't know that I couldn't answer at the time. So I, you know, researched historically, but then I went around and interviewed nine different practitioners in contemporary spirit marriage, contemporary spirit marriages and ask them questions about their marriage to try and understand more about what was going on with me. And that became the core of the, of the research. And, and really it was with an eye to like myself 20 years ago, what would I have wanted to know? <laughs> what would I have needed to know when I was having these encounters? And, you know, there was practically nothing on the internet back then that talked about this. And so, you know, I, I wrote the book really with, with everyone who was having these extraordinary phenomena and needed and, and weren't in a tradition that already practiced it because there are a number of traditions on the planet. And I'm constantly learning about more and more and more people and traditions that are practicing this that are kind of coming forward and saying, oh, that's part of our tradition as well. Um, yeah. So and, and I'll just end by saying that, you know, spirit marriage are those two broadest words that I could think of to encompass this phenomena, right? Spirit being this very large category of anything that isn't in an incarnate physical human body at this time. So we're talking about deities, angels, elementals, beloved dead or ancestors, and on and on and on that could potentially be wed. And then marriage is also sort of the term that most of us understand what it is to be in a bonded, committed relationship with a some with someone. And that's very much what these are. These are committed, bonded relationships with a deity, with an extraordinary being that you have a deep devotion and a deep um, commitment to, like I said, like with those nuns and, and Jesus. They're very committed to that relationship and cultivating, you know, their personal relationship with the divine. And this, these types of unions are really not all that different from cultivating a deep personal relationship with a benevolent, loving being that, um, that really is your, becomes kind of your North Star in life. Yeah. And, you know, I love the fact that where I learned a lot too was in the research of some of the different religions. And, 
you know, my only point of reference in growing up was the Catholic religion, you know. So when you mentioned the Immaculate Conception, that's one of the notes that I had. I was like, oh, is this like the Virgin Mary? And I was like, ding, ding, ding. So I love the example that you also gave of the nuns, but I've never really, I, I'm not well researched in different philosophical religious studies, you know, like with the Bible. I, I've I've talked to some people on the podcast about the Tibetan Book of the Dead and things like that, but I have never done a deep dive into any of these spiritual texts. So I love people like you who have, and then I can just learn so much from it and not have to necessarily do it myself. But, you, you know, you had mentioned in your book, too, that in a lot of these other cultures and other religious studies that are practiced, this is also very normal. It's This is part of it where I think in the West this may sound a little more taboo. Yeah, well, you know, I think here in the West, we are sort of the byproduct of the Christianization mm -hmm. of this culture. And there are some fine grand things with Christianity, but one of the things that, you know, is sort of Christianity's shadow is it's, it's conversion, it's proselytizing, it's, you know, coming in and saying, our way is the only one right, true and only way and everybody else is wrong. And along those lines, <clears throat> Christianity encourages talking to spirits and having relationships with spirits. They've got Jesus, they've got the Holy Spirit, they've got God, they've got the saints and the angels, you know, depending on your tradition. So they're talking to spirits. They're having communication with spirits. It's just that their spirits are okay and everybody else's are suspect. And so it seems a little weird just because that we, mo many of us, shouldn't say all of us, but many of us have been kind of swimming in the waters of this cultural assumption, right? And we also here in the West have a very strong cultural programming around scientism and this sort of masculinist, if we can't verify everything down to bits and bytes, then it's not real and it's not valid. And so many of our decolonialist scholars are coming along, myself as well, saying that like, this very limited way of viewing the world is just that it's a very limited way that has a very specific agenda and that isn't necessarily a bring everybody to the table agenda. And we need to sort of get outside of that and look at the fact that most cultures outside of the West have a much more paranormal acceptance, right? Uh, acceptance of this sort of worldview that supports the, the numinous the um, extraordinary and ways of knowing and being in the world that are outside of just this very uh, narrow Western worldview. So, you know, that's really at the heart of a lot of this research is this sort of queer feminist decolonizing perspective that says we don't have to look like and act like and be like all of these very prescribed narrow boxes that we've been given culturally here. But it takes a little bit of work to get ourselves out of that and to sort of relax into the mystery, right? I call it normalizing the paranormal. We want to sort of normalize the fact that, you know, we have extra senses beyond just the five senses, you know, and as highly sensitive people, we often have really robust extra senses. And so if we understand that that's just part of the spectrum of our humanness and the spectrum of our abilities as as integral beings, right? Integral part of the planet, not its owner, not its boss, but a, a beloved, right? A part of our, the Gaia consciousness that co-creates with uh, myriad different beings, myriad different levels of consciousness from the smallest little mycelium to the largest oceanic body, right? We are part of that, that symphony. And we we really then step into much more of an animist view of the world, which is it's alive with all sorts of different levels of consciousness at uh, varying levels or varying strata of being. Yeah. So I want to get into a little bit more about your background and pers personal experience before this first interaction kind of happened. It sounds like from what you shared, you know, in your book that part of maybe the way that you were raised, there was a little bit of like your own sexuality and, you know, sexual, I guess, nature was kind of suppressed in many ways. I think you went to a Pentecostal college, was it? Yeah, I, I was, yeah, I was raised in the Pentecostal Christian tradition. 
Right. Which is really great in some ways because they're speaking in tongues and laying on of hands and channeling right. the Holy Spirit. So it was very opening in that way. But then it was also very dogmatic and, and fundamentalist in other ways. And I found out pretty early on as a child that all those ecstatic experiences I was having in a Pentecostal service, I could also sort of have out in nature. And in nature, it wasn't, you know, shamed or, you know, some of the more erotic aspects because, you know, frankly, and I, I didn't really understand it as a kid, but being raised when you're filled with the Holy Spirit from a very, very early age. And for me, it was like less than one years old. And I talk about this in the book, how less than one years old, I had a, a, a Holy Spirit kind of possessory or, or healing experience as a child. So being raised in that felt like that energy was had this very vitalizing effect on my body, which is very erotic, right? It it kind of lights us up like a Christmas tree and our whole body kind of goes into exaltation when we're when we're spirit filled. And I learned that I could have that same somatic experience out in nature, usually with trees. I had a, a very strong um, connection to um, trees. And so that was sort of the water that I swam in. And as I became a young adult and became really disenchanted with some of the more, you know, fundamentalist aspects of Christianity, I began to look for other religions. That's why I went into, you know, the study of religion to look for other ways in which that vitality, that eroticism um, manifests in spiritual practice and tradition. Yeah. And with your sharing, too, of some of your experiences, you had gone through a pretty abusive marriage. You later went on to get therapy. And I think you had said, like, the first thing was like Freudian therapy, which didn't do much of anything. And then, you know, went on to some more integral therapy and working with some other healers and kind of learning more about your own spirituality and healing some of the traumas and just asking these questions because I was, I'm a trained mental health therapist. I'm a licensed mental health therapist. And of course, one of the, when you wear that clinical hat and you read something like this and you kind of mention in, in this book, so what's the difference between a potential hallucination or true like spirit contact, you know, in marriage? And of course, like the clinical aspect would be like, okay, well, is, is there trauma with this human being? And is this kind of like a need to fulfill intimacy in some other ways? And how do we know that this isn't just, you know, the person kind of over-identifying with some dream archetypes that's going on? And But what I loved about your book is that you asked all of these questions of yourself, you know, and it was, you really had like just great internal, I don't know, just like just this this internal compass that you were even asking yourself all of these questions, like what is going on? And did like a deep dive into your own healing. So I, I'd like to set you up to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Well, you know, I think that I I took from a very early age, I took this the sort of Socratic charge of know thyself really seriously. And and I've always just been really a, a student of the psyche, a student of, you know, of psycho-spirituality, I should say. And and so, you know, I, because of the traumatic experiences that I had as a young woman, I got into therapy because I, I was, I, I felt like that was probably going to help me figure some stuff out that I was on my own, just struggling to figure out, like, why am I repeating these same patterns over and over and over again? And like, and as you said, the first therapist that I went to didn't really help much. And so I began to being in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was, I'm blessed with having a, you know, a plethora of different types of psychotherapies that I could explore. And so you know, one of the things that happened when when I was first being contacted is I had a, a transpersonal psychologist that I was working with and she really helped me. And, and she is well versed in earth based spiritualities. That's sort of like her thing. And so um, she wasn't going to dismiss these experiences that I was having outright as hallucinations, which you know, most traditional therapists, you go to them and they get out their DSM and they're like, you're hearing voices, you're seeing things, you know, let's get you on some medicine. Let's, you know, and Meladoma Somme has a really great article that he wrote about, you know, the sh how a shaman sees folks in a mental hospital, which I think is a, a really 
powerful critique of what we're doing to folks who are having, uh, Stan Groff calls them spiritual emergencies, right? Or spiritual emergence, right? So I was having this experience and I had my therapist, but I knew that like I needed support. And, and that's the first thing that, you know, when people reach out to me and are having these experiences, I say, get your support team together. And your support team could look like a mental health professional. But, you know, in my case, I also needed somebody who knew about spirit merit. And that's where uh, the House of Brie and my mentor, Orion Foxwood, came in. You know, I found someone who was in an, a spirit marriage tradition that was a leader, a minister in their path. He's a British traditional witch and a, a fairy seer. And and then, you know, I, I had mentors in the Shakta Tantric practices as well. So I got kind of a team of folks together that could really help me understand and and ground and validate a lot of these experiences. Because there is, we're talking about, by and large, the imaginal realm, the realm of our imagination, which isn't just about what we can make up, but is, you know, if you're looking at it from a, a ceremonial magic perspective, it's the realm of the 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 archetype, the blueprints, the 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 astral realm before things actually come down into the physical. And there's this great flexibility and fluidity there. And we'll, we're working with beings generally that aren't incarnate. And so we're having to move into these realms of psycho-spirituality that are sometimes tenuous. And, you know, and so part of my grounding it for myself was to get the training in ceremonial magic, to have the, the practices and the traditions that would hold me and guide me in a way that felt safe and sane and and to have community around it, you know, and that's one of the things that I love about uh, Maladoma's community or Maladoma's work. His work really brought together communities of people doing these practices together. And that's a big piece in, in my research. The different folks that I talked to, most of them had communities that they were plugged into, that they were practicing. And it creates a kind of checks and balances for many spirit marriage practices, not all, but for many spirit marriage practitioners, I should say, the marriage happens at the request of the spirit. And often the spirit will appear to someone else, to like a minister or a mentor and say, I want to marry so-and-so. They have a certain quality that I think we can do um, a, some really interesting work together or we can bring something to, to the community. And so the marriage will happen at, at the request. Now, that didn't happen in my case. The spirit came to me in my case, but I also figured out pretty early on that the spirit came to me in that way because I needed to do this research and I wouldn't have done it any other way if I was already being told what to think rather than coming to those questions and that inquiry on my own. Right. And so, you know, maybe we should, because you mentioned his name, Maladoma Somme, maybe we should jump to that. For my longtime listeners, they know that I have brought his work up many times. One, because I'm kind of a student of one of his students. My One of my teachers, Jeanette Defoe, is her name every year. She studied under Maladoma and went through like the true I would say less Western, how it, how it got brought back to the Western. Like she had to sacrifice the animal, like what's talked about in, you know, seven. And she did like the real rituals of being basically the buried alive of the earth ceremony, you know, where they dug their own graves. Whereas, you know, when we do it here in the West, it's not, it's not as intense, you know, it's, it's more like, okay, we're going to put some dirt on you as opposed to you're going to be under the ground for 24 hours. So she really did like the full initiations and, um, and ironically enough, next week, I'm going to do one of the rituals. It's a fire ritual. This is a fire year. And so I go every year to this woman's wellness retreat and Jeanette, you know, takes us through and we practice all of the Jagara traditions and creating the shrines. And it's really beautiful. So when I was reading your book, I was like, wait, did she just say the Dagara people? No way. So Maladoma is mentioned in this book. So I went right to chapter seven, the West African shrine keeper, to hear the story of this practitioner that is in spirit marriage 
with the Tingan tree, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And so I was very connected to this chapter because I know a lot of the traditions of this West African tribe. I've had a divination by Maladoma myself and met him in person. He has since passed or is in transition. He's now an ancestor, one of our, our elders here in the ancestral realm. And so it was really interesting and I was able to grasp this very easily. I too have a strong connection with trees and was wondering if you can kind of give an overview of Madrone, who is the practitioner that you interviewed, and kind of giving using this as an example of how she was selected to become kind of this, to become married to this tree. Yeah. Taking on. Yeah. So in Madrone's case, <clears throat> she's part of the West um, Coast um, of the United States, Dagara village. And her husband is an elder in the tradition. And her husband and Maladoma were talking about how he needed to set up some shrines. He needed to do some work for the community that was developing here. And in, in the Dagara tradition, before the shrines that he needed to set up could happen, they needed to establish a Tingan shrine. And so Tingan in that cosmology, as you may know, is the spirit. It's sort of, he's the masculine spirit of earth. And he governs things like foundation and stability and wealth and justice. And so he and so Maladoma and, and her husband were sort of like scratching their heads, like, you know, who's going to, who can we ask, you know, who would be the right person to, to be this Tingan shrine keeper? And Maladoma said, oh, you know who it is. It's your wife. It's Matrone. She already has a really strong connection to trees and she would be a perfect shrine keeper. And so because that part of the marriage and, and, and the way that the spirit of Dingon manifests is the, the shrine keeper finds a tree that is attuned to Dingon's energy. And then the shrine is instilled at that tree, installed at that tree. And the community goes with the, the, the shrine keeper to the tree to do various rituals, divinations, what, whatever. And so, so she was presented with the opportunity to marry Tingan. And, you know, she said, oh, I, I knew what arranged marriages felt like after this, because here she's already married to her husband and they had a young daughter at the time. And she's being asked to marry this other extraordinary being. And I think that her husband already had marriages or in that tradition, they call them merges with the contomble and maybe another. He, I know he was a contomble voice diviner and also I think a cowrie shell diviner. And so so she was now being asked to to bring Tingan into the, you know, into the, the marriage. And so um, she said yes you know, sure, let's try this out. This is one of the ways that I can serve my community. And interestingly enough, it made a lot of sense because her work in the world is as a financial advisor and Tingon governs wealth and, and stability. And so she felt like there was this beautiful harmony between what she was doing professionally out in the world and what she was doing in service to the to her the West Coast community. And so in her case, she is one of the only female Tingan shrine keepers. Typically, I guess in Dagara land, they're they're typically male. But she was asked to step into this role and found a tree, this giant, giant redwood tree, which she took me to when we did her interview, but up in the mountains on public land. So it was interesting, the process that she had to go through to, to do the ritual with that tree because it couldn't happen with everybody on the land at the tree. So she had to get like a branch from the tree and take it and do it as part of the community ritual at a different location, a private location. And then, you know, I think hers is a great example as well, because it gives us this understanding that it's not just this nebulous spirit thing, you know, this sort of floaty, disembodied right. spirit. But there, here we have a spirit that is manifesting through a redwood tree. She has a relationship with this tree as a proxy for the spirit. And that that is actually not unique. I mean, in, in much of Hindu and tantric practice, you install a murti, you install the deity, right, within a statue or an image, right? And that statue, that image becomes alive with the with the essence of that spirit being it and it's also in the the uh, 
the Egyptian and the Hellenic traditions. Theurgy is this practice of drawing the divine essence or drawing the divine form into the statue. And, you know, it's why the Christians accused non-Christian cultures of being idolaters, because that it becomes this, this interface point or this proxy point for relationality. Mm-hmm. And and also very similar to like, I know that there are shrines that people will actually go to and believe that they can receive a healing just by touching it or going there. So again, it's like, as we're talking about the spirit marriage, there's there's a lot of ceremonies that are there or other figures, figurines, statues um, of deities that are considered to be holy, that people will go and visit and receive that energy. So very similar to this tree um, that we're talking about here. And the, the interesting thing in responsibility, because I remember she was saying like, you haven't asked me what my challenges were with this, you know, is that the way that I understand it is that she will bring questions or problems from the community up to the tree and will sit there and meditate. And she'll go there each year on their anniversary, you know, to celebrate it. And also interesting how her husband was also involved in the ceremony and that allowed him to then go into his own ceremony of something that he needed to do, you know, as well. So it's, you know, I think this is this is a situation where you have two human beings who are very immersed in this type of world and don't find it odd. You know, it's just like yeah. a part of of their being, but also just the responsibility of her going there and taking part of the village, the community, you know, and bringing it to the tree to get answers and then to bring back, you know, it does seem like it's a pretty big responsibility to hold that and to be selected as this and to walk in those shoes. Yeah, I think by and large, I mean, at least the the seven and that's, you know, a fairly small sample size. But, you know, for the research that I was doing, I needed people that would let me into the inside of their stories and not see me as some objective academic outsider. And so, you know, I was very graciously given these these seven stories, these seven interviews. I call them my co-researchers to talk to. But, you know, spirit marriage is kind of at its essence a polyamorous practice in that almost everybody that I talked to had a human partner that they were involved with, either married or engaged. And and so they had to navigate, you know, the human relationship and the spirit relationships. Most of those people that um, were partnered, their partners were part of the tradition that they were in. So it was sort of understood and held within that, that, that context. And it didn't cause a lot of friction in their relationship. If anything, it sort of enhanced things because the other thing about the folks that I spoke with is they were all ministers of one way, shape or form, right? They all served their community. They all sort of mediated these spirits, not just for themselves and their own personal gratification, but for service to the community through divination, healing, teaching, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So can you go into a little bit more? I'm sure I have like so many questions to ask you. Can we talk about the intimacy and relationship? You know, I'm sure people are thinking, is there sex that can happen? Like, are you actually in a sexual relationship with this otherworldly being? What does that look like? What does the intimacy look like? Does that even exist? And, you know, I ask that question too, because I think sometimes we may see these otherworldly beings of not of form. So how can that actually happen or be a part of this relationship as I'm in a physical body and they are not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, spiritual intimacy. I have a a colleague who's sort of an expert in this. She's a sexologist and she has uh, quite a bit of research on spiritual intimacy, which is sort of a subset of spirit marriage. So I'm talking with spirit marriage about like a bonded devotional relationship. And she's looking at the more broader, like, phenomenology of having erotic sexual encounters with non-corporeal beings. Um, and they're, they're connected, although not everyone that is married to a spirit necessarily has a erotic relationship or 
if they do, it's not the goal of the marriage. And I would just back up and say that, you know, again, here in the West, we have such a charged view of eroticism and what's going on there in sexuality and what's going on in sexuality. And from the sort of tantric worldview perspective, as a as a tantric practitioner, I it, I look at it more along the lines of vitalism that arises through the body. In that practice, we call it Kundalini Shakti, which is this vitalizing energy, right, that can move completely through our entire bodies. When I was talking earlier about the in the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right, or the gifts of the Spirit that sort of light us up. And we often associate eroticism just with like our genitals, right? Just with the sexual organs. And in in sort of erotic mysticism, the whole body goes into exaltation. The whole body goes into this vitalized state. And so we sometimes, and this isn't true for every erotic spirit encounter, but you know, again, I looked at it very specifically through the lens of benevolent entity contact. I didn't really get into like incubus and succubus and uh, unwanted contact. I looked at, we want this, we trust the spirits we're working with, we've done our due diligence, we've gotten to know them, and we are ready, willing, and able to have a bond or intimate relationship with them. We often interpret their touch, their contact, which is vibrationally different than ours and in many cases a kind of quickening or an activating energy like that the, the vitalism of the the kundalini we interpret that as sex we interpret that as erotic because that that's the closest thing that our body usually can register but that's not necessarily what they're up to most of the folks that i spoke with when we touched on eroticism were like that's used as a way to awaken, quicken, activate, and transmit energy. And, and we know um, that there's precedent for this because of the deity yogic practices and the, the tantric practices of using that vitalizing inner and the Taoist healing, you know, dual cultivation practices of Taoism, where that energy is used for longevity, for immortality, for quickening and awakening them extrasensory perception in the humans. And so, you know, when we are interfacing with that kind of energy or when we're interfacing with our spirits, that energy can e easily kind of come online and we think, oh, this is, you know, this is sexual, this is erotic. And that may be a nice feeling and a nice byproduct, but it often isn't the, the goal of what the encounter is meant to do. Or the goal is, I would say, a little more spiritual and a little less carnal than we think of when we think of sexuality. And that you know, hence this idea of erotic mysticism, right? It is a, a psycho-spiritual embodied sexuality that really heightens our consciousness and sort of expands us in really exciting ways. Yeah. And so that would be the next follow-up question is like, what is the point of this? What, you know, why are these otherworldly beings coming, initiating, wanting this marriage? I have, I've been having a lot of people on the podcast this year talking about a 5D energy and how we're moving into 5D consciousness and the, the veil is thinning. Is there a part of this as being an evolution of consciousness of blending these worlds together? Like is earth really transforming to a point where there isn't just going to be like, okay, this is a place just for humans per se, but this is going to be very, maybe much more normal of interactions that the spirits that are in the physical bodies are going to be consistently interacting with the otherworldly beings. So yeah, I, I know I asked you like three questions in there, but <laughs> what is, yeah. I guess initially, what is the purpose? What is the point? Why is this happening? Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I think that, I mean, this has never, this practice has never stopped. It's been happening since, I mean, I, I don't think I mentioned yet the first recorded textual evidence of this is like ancient Mesopotamia. And the Sumerian sacred marriage where the priests or the priestesses of the goddess Ishtar would marry the goddess. And in many of those cases, they were tending a shrine with a statue there. And they were, you know, they were in the marriage because that they were the, the, the clerics doing that 
those rituals, those religious practices in a bonded relationship. So it's never really stopped. It's just been sort of marginalized and in some cases vilified. And I think that the reason that it we're hearing about it right now again, and the reason this material wanted to come forth at this time is because that it really can. Well, well there's two things. Um, both contemporary practitioners and folklorically, we see that stepping into these kinds of unions, it it bestows gifts of the spirit. It bestows extraordinary gifts onto the practitioner. Anywhere from, you know, in the in the Indic context, the cities, right, the paranormal abilities to healing, prophecy, charisma, the ability to to have extraordinary gifts and talents. If you Look at, you know, Socrates and Plato's teachings around the daimon, having a, a wedded relationship and a really close relationship with the daimon conferred one's genius, right? That was sort of the, 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 this extraordinary or something that set one apart from just what everybody else was, you know, doing, paying their bills and showing up and doing their jobs. So there's this self-evolution piece to it. But I, I think that if, you look at it currently where we are right now as a planet and our current ecological crisis, as I was talking about before, I feel like spirit marriage really kind of forces us to step out of our anthropocentric worldview, which says humans run the show here and are making all the decisions and and it really forces us into much more of a co-creative relationship with our planet. And I think it encourages, you know, through this animus lens, it really encourages us, us to look through the the Gaia hypothesis theory, right? That the planet lives out beyond just humanity, that the planet has myriad different kinds of consciousness that may look and interact differently than humans look and interact, but are no less seminal to the life and the viability of the planet. And, you know, if we as a human species are to survive on the planet, I think spirit marriage is one of the ways. It's one of the many spiritual technologies that I think will help us survive as a species. I think the planet is going to be fine. Whether our species makes it or not, I think really depends on how quickly we can get out of our sort of myopic uh, three-dimensional worldview and sort of step into this larger, more integrative space. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned earlier that kind of these otherworldly beings will select people that they would like to marry. So, and most of these people, well, these people that you interviewed are considered to be practitioners. So it's, are the people who are chosen per se, people who are already like in service of the world, or I don't know if like, if these otherworldly beings are able to recognize what their purpose to be of services on this world, like with Madrone that we talked about, she is like a financial consultant and does all that. She kind of has like a daytime job, but then gets selected to do this. So it's not like these, everyone is selected to go into a spirit marriage and everyone should like figure this out. Like, oh, who am I going to marry in spirit? It's more of a selection process. And are certain people selected to have this type of relationship? That's a good question. I mean, is everybody destined to marry a spirit? No, not necessarily. Because spirit marriage, you know, is kind of a more advanced practice. And usually it comes forth for folks that have some sort of co-creative project that they need to bring out into the world, whether in my case, it was this book. In Orion Foxwood's case, it was the House of Brief Fairy Seership and the whole teaching system. In Madrone's case, it's service to her her community through, you know, both her financial advising and the, the work that she does with. But it also can be like ecological projects. It can be different things that you're bringing um, into the world through a very bonded, deep devotional. I mean, these are highly disciplined practices meaning it's not just something that you float around with. It It's grounded, it's daily, it's committed. In many cases, when the marriage is proposed and, and the process leading up to the marriage requires a complete transformation of one's life and self. I mean, I 
had to change the way that I ate, that I slept, that I exercised. My relationships changed. My career changed. It was a huge upheaval in my life. And not everybody, you know, wants to go through that. Not everybody wants to sign up for that. But what I love to say is that, you know, even if a spirit isn't ringing your doorbell asking you to marry it, we all have a divine self, right? We all have, in some traditions, it's called the, the Holy Guardian Angel or the Devi or the Metet, this divine being that is our patron, God, goddess, whatever being. And we all can step into a relationship with that being and learn more about ourselves through the enactment of communion and communication with that, that rarefied aspect of ourselves. And that was an interesting thing that sort of manifested through my research is that, oh, this divine self conversation is a kind of spirit marriage when you really step onto the path, right, of the great work and of knowing that part of yourself and of, of having a committed, committed relationship to that, that divine you know, some people call it the higher self and and some others call it the wise, loving presence. And, you know, Aristotle called it the entelechy and, you know, Barbara Marks Hubbard called it, you know, the homo universalis. And I mean, there's a lot of the true self. It's it's Jung's individuation process. That's that's one of the ways of looking at it. And and I think that that is a form of a bonded, committed relationship when you make that bonded, committed relationship to knowing to knowing thyself, to knowing yourself. So if we have listeners that are listening and maybe they were where you once were and maybe they're writing off some of their experiences as just like a really interesting dream that they're having. I mean, do you have a specific, a little bit of like a checklist of how to know if you're being initiated into a spirit marriage? And then I'm assuming that you would kind of be a person that people could contact to say, can you help me through this? Or who would you recommend that people reach out to, to help them through something like this? But how would they know specifically? Do you kind of have like this, 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 and this, most likely you're being initiated into a spirit marriage? Well, I mean, the spirit in marriage is, is, is typified by the proposal, right? Mm -hmm. If this, if you have an extraordinary being or another worldly being that is showing up to you. In my case, it was in my dreams, but this could happen in ritual or in uh, altered states of consciousness. If that being is showing up and asking you to marry it, that's pretty much, that's the proposal. That's, you know, that's pretty much everything before that I would say is just dating, right? You know, everything before a proposal is like getting to know you. Maybe you're a guide. Maybe you're meant to be a beloved. Maybe you're just this spirit that I'm working with to do for this particular purpose. So there's sort of like a continuum of contact, right? We have channeling and mediumship and possessory states, which all are sort of spirits coming in or out or communication between them. And then the marriage is spirit is shown up and is asking either you or somebody that is close to you that indicating that they want to marry you. And then, you know, from that, there are three keys that I encourage people to, to cultivate around spirit marriage. Devotion, which we've talked about, discernment, which you've touched on a little bit, and discipline. And you can go to my website, drmeganrose.com, and I have sort of three keys to spirit marriage. You can download it and learn more about those. I have courses that I teach. I actually teach a Spirit Marriage 101 course that is a self-study course uh, that folks can learn about deeper practices and exercises that they can do to help refine if they think that they are, you know, headed towards a Spirit Marriage or if they would like to. You know, I have people come to me that say, I am so in love with the goddess. You know, I'm so in love with Mary Magdalene. She has been a deity that I've been drawn to for my whole life. And could I marry her? And I say, well, you can woo her and you can ask and you can see, you know, and that's all comes into that devotional. If you step into a deep devotional relationship and really you refine your discernment. And that's kind of what you were talking about earlier with how do you know you're not making it up? That That's the practice of discernment and really getting some, you know, rock star skills around your discernment practice, which could be divination and counsel and all sorts of different things. 
right? And then just the discipline of doing it every day, of doing it very regularly, of building a relationship with this being, like you would build a relationship with a human, right? Like a human that you're dating and getting to know and trying to decide if there's somebody that, you know, you want to go deep with and far. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. We will definitely put your website in the show notes. And just to let people know, we barely touch the surface of this book and of her work. There just isn't enough time. So this, and by the way, I have to compliment you. Your bibliography is like phenomenal. There's so many resources in her book alone. I mean, the research that you have done is just out of this world. I just couldn't believe it. A lot of names I also recognize and here, some I did not. And I was like, okay, great. I have a little checklist if I want to do a deeper dive here. So the bibliography was fascinating. Just want to mention that for people who get excited about those things like me. But the book again is Spirit Marriage, Intimate Relationships with Otherworldly Beings. And today I had Dr. Megan Rose on the show. Please reach out to her. Let her know that you heard this interview here. If you have questions, I mean, this is your go-to woman here for this stuff. And so excited that this is out there and we're having a conversation about it. And I think it's important. And thank you for opening up my mind to a whole new realm. And I'm kind of excited to go to my, even more excited to go uh, to my retreat this, this next week to be in ceremony and, you know, just maybe be open, see what, what could happen. And I'll be calling you if any, if I get any proposals. Well, I was going to say, you know, I have a website for the book called spiritmarriage.com. And if people know of accounts of spirit marriage, you know, if you read the book and you're like, oh, there's this account and this account and this account historically or folklorically or anthropologically, I have a form on there that you can fill and send those stories to me. And also, if you're having your own encounter and you want to share that story with me, I'm co- I'm constantly collecting those because I've got sort of an, another research project after this that I'm going to be working on around spiritual intimacy. So go to spiritmarriage.com, share your stories there. Awesome. And get back in touch with me once that other project is done and we'll have you back on and we'll talk some more. Love it. Fantastic. All right. Yes. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. I hope you have a beautiful day. Thanks for tuning in. And I'm going to bring another amazing person to you next Monday. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial and start streaming over 100 hours of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com and be sure to use coupon code podcast30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now. I'm Austin Lugo. I'm Andrew Harp. This is With Nothing to Say. And let's talk about movies. With over 3,000 films log, Andrew and I, best friends since middle school, have dedicated our lives to watching, making, and talking about movies. Each week, Andrew and I handpick a movie he's seen, I've seen, or neither of us have seen, and dive deep into anything and everything two wannabe cinephils could ever think of. From horror to dramedy, we do it all. So join us as we talk about everything movies, and maybe you too can become a bona fide cinephil.